Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and today we're getting out of the city and heading to the big, beautiful body of water about 30 miles east of Washington, the Chesapeake Bay. Over the next hour, we'll meet all sorts of folks who live and work near the water, from crab pickers to boat builders. The older boats, there was a lot more individual art in every one of them. We'll talk with a driving force in the long-running Save the Bay campaign. If you can't do it here on Chesapeake Bay, what real hope do we have for any water body on the planet? And we'll travel back in time to the days when a certain Chesapeake beach doubled as an amusement park. They had a steam engine everybody had to ride on. I don't care if you were two or 102. But we'll kick off today's show on the dock of the bay, so to speak. Oh, look what I found. Where 32-year-old Rachel Dean... You want me to kiss him? is kneeling beside a plastic baby pool as she shows a cluster of kids a whole mess of marine life, like this horseshoe crab. Rachel found the 12-legged arthropod in the Patuxent River near the Calvert Marine Museum in Solomons, Maryland. So what are some of the critters we have over in this baby pool? We have oysters. We dredged those up yesterday afternoon. And the periwinkles we got out of the marsh this morning, the snails, and we have some razor clams there. It's getting on dinner time, and the Calvert County native has spent all day on the dock entertaining visitors as part of the museum's grand reopening festival, celebrating the facility's $2 million renovation. I don't know which is more tired, me or the animals. But here's the thing. Even after the crowds head home, Rachel Dean has a bit more entertaining to do on her 40-foot boat, the rough water. I'm going to slip the boat out of the boat basin. We'll go out onto the Patuxent River, and I can show you how we work the dredge. And if it looks like we can get away with it, I'll drop the patent tongs, show you how those work, too. See, in addition to teaching young people, and the mother of two actually teaches professionally high school English, Captain Rachel Dean also works on and around the Chesapeake Bay as a waterman. What made you want to do this? A bucket and a crab net when I was little, I guess? As a school teacher, I hear so many kids say, oh, there's nothing to do around here. I can't wait to grow up and move out of here. And I just say, this playground? You want to leave this? And I went to college, and and I have a master's now, but I'm always going to come back to it. You hear the old-timers say, once it's in your blood, it's in your blood. For my husband and I, we're both first generation, so it must have gotten injected somewhere because it wasn't inherited. Rachel and her husband, Simon, supply rockfish, crabs, and oysters to local businesses through their company, Patuxent River Seafood. They also run Solomon's Island Heritage Tours, part of the Waterman Heritage Tours program. The Chesapeake Conservancy, Coastal Heritage Alliance, Maryland Watermen's Association, and the Chesapeake Bay Maritime Museum have trained more than 100 watermen to show off their way of life to tourists, from setting up crab pots... Take a minute to call in my scientific collection permit so they know we're out here. To dredging for oysters. I'm sampling oysters outside of season, so I work with the state to get a scientific collection permit so that I can do demonstrations. On today's private tour, after Rachel calls in her permit... Hi, um, my name is Rachel Dean. I just called up to Annapolis. I was trying to call in my scientific collection permit, but they transferred me to you. I'm going to be in the lower Patuxent River, Calvert County. She shows me how she harvests oysters with her boat's jaw-like, claw-like patent tongs. And the power dredge, a heavy chain bag attached to a long rope. You can feel it. You feel the rope. You can feel it hitting the oysters on the bottom. Feel her vibrating. 
She then dumps the oysters with a crash onto a metal culling board. That is some pretty oysters right there. Some real big oysters. They have a lot of growing bills on them. Looks real good for next year. If we can keep them alive, we can keep them happy. We'll have a good year and many years after that, too. The way Captain Rachel Dean sees it, she and her fellow watermen want nothing more than to keep bay species happy. But she worries those of us who aren't on the water every day might not get that. The waterman's way of life is something that people don't know much about. And when you don't know much about something, you kind of start to speculate or you, you go on things that you hear. So there's a lot of things that people really don't know about us that if I can bring them out here on the boat and I can show them, and then maybe we can gain their support. They'll start to buy the fresh local seafood. So much of our seafood comes from out of the state and really out of the country. Rachel says her tours often highlight the challenges watermen face, like encroaching development and increasing sedimentation in the bay. Oysters need a hard surface to be able to grow, so we're struggling with the populations of the oysters because these oysters aren't finding that clean substrate to set on. So we have a lot of sediment, and you hear a lot of people say, oh, you know, we shouldn't be harvesting oysters. We're at 1% of historic populations. But it really isn't the harvesters compared to, you know, you look around and you see all these houses, and, and you know what's happening to our waterways. In fact, she says, if anybody is truly invested in where these populations are going, it's a waterman. Or wait, now that I think about it. In Rachel Dean's case, wouldn't it be water woman? I have a lot of people that, you know, say, oh, sorry, water woman, and I don't want that distinction. Are you sort of one of a rare breed, or are there a lot of women like you? We have one in the area that got her captain's license after uh, just completing the heritage training program. There's a couple of lady charter boat captains in the area, too. There's a young lady, I believe she's out of Anne Arundel County. She works her own boat full-time. She like I did, was out here pregnant. So, How long were you working when you were pregnant? I charter fished until I was about six months pregnant. And actually, she's part of the crew now. She asked Daddy for a cruise ship for Christmas, so she got it. Not that all watermen are quick to accept a woman working on the water. Captain Rachel Dean loves talking about the superstitions held by more old-school watermen, like how you shouldn't paint your boat's bottom blue, how you shouldn't let dogs on your boat, or bananas. And can you believe they think a woman on a boat is bad luck? Yeah, I've heard that one too. I'm okay with it, though. (laughs) It's never really bothered me much. (laughs) Solomon's Island Heritage Tour's summer schedule will be available soon. In the meantime, to learn more about the company's offerings and to see photos of Captain Rachel Dean in action, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Hey, little boy, what you got We're going to head across the Chesapeake now from the Patuxent River to Maryland's eastern shore. That's where, right about now, the blue crab harvest is on. But before this delicacy makes its way to your local grocery store or restaurant, crab pickers pluck out and pack the crab meat. It's labor-intensive seasonal work that in some ways hasn't changed for generations. But as Jacob Fenston tells us, thanks to globalization, in a lot of ways, it has. 
Jack Brooks flips on the lights in a dark warehouse filled with hulking machinery. This is at his crab picking business in Cambridge, Maryland. Back in the 60s and 70s, when then my father and some of his colleagues, they were having more and more trouble finding people to come to work here, mechanization was the answer. So they said, let's build machines. So uh, this is the result. The machine snakes all the way around the warehouse. It does everything, washing crabs, cracking them, and extracting the meat. This was state-of-the-art stuff. But the resulting product isn't as good. The meat is uh, just doesn't stack up to the hand-picked meat. So these days they cook, pick, and package crab pretty much the same way they have since 1890. That's when Brooks's great-great-grandfather, John Morgan Clayton, started the business J.M. Clayton Company. It's still almost all done by hand. As the crabs come in, we put them in these baskets. Uh, we'll dump them out, and then we'll take them in here to these steamers where we, uh, where we steam them. Basically tighten these wing nuts down, six of them, and uh, in these vessels it's about 15 pounds of uh, pressure per square inch. So uh, kind, of a, kind of a big steam pressure cooker. The one thing that has changed in this industry is who picks the crab after it's cooked. These days, 80% of the crab pickers Brooks employs are seasonal workers from Mexico. They come for about seven months and then return home. We have a capacity to have about about 80 people in here, 85 people in here picking. At the height of the season later this summer, the long tables and metal stools will be filled with women wearing aprons. On the day I visited early in the season, they weren't picking crabs. This year, Brooks says the season is at least two or three weeks delayed because of the cold winter. The industry here started changing back in the 1970s when local workers stopped coming back season after season like they once did. Instead of having all the folks you had in the fall when you got done, there were less. Brooks says he understands why people might rather take other jobs. Crab picking is hard work for low pay and for only part of the year. How would you like to have your paycheck cut off right around Thanksgiving and, you know, hope for a better year next year? It's it's kind of tough that way. At the same time workers were disappearing, imported crab from Asia and Latin America was starting to flood the market at a fraction of the price of Maryland crab. The answer for Brooks was what was then a little-used guest worker program. In the mid-1990s, he applied for seasonal foreign guest workers who would come on H-2B visas. There are fundamental flaws in the H-2B visa system. Sarah Rempel is policy director for the Baltimore-based group Centro de los Derechos del Migrante. CDM, or the Center for Migrants' Rights. A few years ago, the group interviewed more than 40 migrant workers in Maryland's crab industry. They worked long hours for low pay. They were in a very vulnerable position. Their employment was tied to only one employer, and they could not switch jobs when there were abusive employment conditions. She says workers are afraid to complain if they're mistreated because if they lose their job, they will also likely lose their visa and be sent home. This may be especially problematic for people who've already gone into debt just to get to the United States. Rempel says many H-2B workers pay to get a job, and many have to get loans to do that. What we found was that 58% of workers were paying recruitment fees, although they are technically forbidden, and that 47% of workers took out um, pre-employment loans to cover the costs of not only recruitment, but the visa processing fees and the transportation to the U.S. I'm sure there's some bad apples around that don't treat people right. 
Brian Hall owns G.W. Hall & Son, a crab-picking business on rural Hooper's Island. These people down here in Dorchester County, we treat the girls the way they're supposed to be treated. And as far as wages, he says he's paying good money. Seven fifty-two an hour, guaranteed. Just above minimum wage, but workers can earn more by picking more crab. Most of my girls make $11, 12 an hour. He says that's the most he can pay and still have a chance against global competitors. Back in Cambridge, Jack Brooks says a lot of his friends have already gone out of business. In 1995, before the imports really took hold, there were 53 companies in the state of Maryland to do what we do. Now there are less than 20 licensed and probably less than 15 operating. But there is an upside to the cheap imported crab that's now available everywhere. Brooks says it's expanded the market. There are now crab eaters in parts of the country, like the Midwest, where there didn't used to be. I'm Jacob Fenston. After the break, now you see it, now you don't. The mysterious disappearance of an often overlooked species in the Chesapeake Bay. We'd be remiss if we didn't consider the fact that it's all connected and that all of these guys are an important part of the food chain. That's just ahead as our On the Bay show continues here on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. We're calling this week's show On the Bay, as we bring you stories straight from the Chesapeake. Up next, we'll dig deeper into the health of this massive yet fragile body of water. Now, the Chesapeake stretches all the way from Hever to Grace, Maryland, to Norfolk, Virginia. That's about 200 miles. It's fed by some 50 rivers and streams, which have the rather troublesome habit of picking up gasoline and sediment washed off city streets, fertilizer from rural farmland, and all sorts of gunk from wastewater facilities and industrial plants, and dropping them right into the bay. Fifty years ago, a group of Baltimore businessmen got together and eventually formed a non-governmental organization that would help save the bay. That slogan became the rallying cry for the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, which has become a major player in the struggle to clean up the Chesapeake. Tara Boyle met up with the foundation's president, Will Baker, on a pier looking out over the bay to talk about what's been done and what still needs to be done to make the bay a healthier place for humans and animals alike. We've been hearing recently that crabs are not doing too well right now in the bay. And I think over the years, people who've lived here a while, you hear, you know, some years the crabs are down, some years the oysters have been dramatically down. But it seems that things rise and fall and rise and fall. And it's hard, I think, for the average person to get much of a sense of the big picture of what what that means in terms of the big trajectory of where the bay is headed. Can you give us a bit of that big picture? It's very hard for the average citizen reading and listening to media to get a sense of how this huge system is doing in the long term. The blue crab is one species that you don't want to look at on a year-to-year basis. They have very short lifespans to grow to market size. And their populations 
are affected very often by what happens in the ocean where they float as free-floating larvae after they've spawned, whether they're blown out to sea north or south or back into the Chesapeake Bay. So you get these wild fluctuations of blue crab populations, and since their lives to market size are so short, it looks like in, when you look at harvest that you get very, very big swings. One species that was the greatest in terms of market share in the Chesapeake Bay for decades, if not centuries, was the Chesapeake Bay oyster. Ten years ago, 40,000 bushels were harvested. In 2013, 750,000 bushels were harvested. The oyster has not been as healthy in the Chesapeake since the early 1980s, and I believe that in 2014, we may well see over a million bushels of oysters come out of the Chesapeake Bay. That doesn't say everything is fine. Far from it. But we can show good news and we can show continuing challenges. And nothing represents that better than the crab, which is currently hurting, and the oyster, which is coming back strong. We've talked with a number of farmers and watermen in this watershed over the years. And I think among many of them, there's sort of a sense, they feel like they've been a little bit picked on <laughs> over the years, that they've tried to do their part to help clean up the bay, but that there hasn't been enough attention paid to things like stormwater runoff, to pollution caused by the massive development of this region. What would you say to those critiques on their part? Well, everyone who lives in a house has to meet strict regulations when it comes to their sewage. So you and I and everyone else in the 17 million of us who live here have to do our part. Cities have to do their part. Industry has to do its part. And farmers need to do their part too. And the vast majority of them are willing and believe that it's part and parcel of their job to do their best. All the federal government is saying is that each of the states have to meet pollution reduction numbers. And that means that we all have to be part of the solution. You were hired to work for CBF in 1976, I believe. This has been your career. Are we where you thought we would be in 2014? I started at CBF a month out of college in 1976 as an intern, worked my way onto the payroll after about four or five months, and uh, was at the right place at the right time, I guess. And so I've been here ever since. I've been running it since 1982. You know, back in 1982, we thought it was going to be a lot easier. <laughs> really, 17 million people now in the Bay Watershed, dramatic increases in population. We've certainly cut the per capita impact on the Bay dramatically, but the numbers of us keep growing. So did we think we'd be further? Sure. Do we get discouraged? Absolutely not. And really what's happening here on the Chesapeake some could argue we're actually better off than many other bodies of water around the world. We want to be the first to really show that you can turn around a complex system. And I might go further than that. I might say that if you can't do it here on Chesapeake Bay, with Washington, D.C. at the heart of the watershed, with all of the political interest, if we can't save Chesapeake Bay, what real hope do we have for any water body on the planet? This is where we have to show success, and this is where we're determined to show success. That was Chesapeake Bay Foundation President Will Baker talking with Metro Connections' Tara Boyle. Oh.
Now, we've been hearing a lot this hour about development and how the growth of our region affects the health of the bay. Environmental regulators say if we want a cleaner bay, we have to control the polluted water running off the concrete, asphalt, and metal in our cities and trickling into the rivers and streams of the Chesapeake. But as environment reporter Jonathan Wilson tells us, the way we control that runoff is under debate. As far as Jeff Corbin is concerned, there's really no argument about how urgent stormwater management is for the Chesapeake region. Stormwater management has to occur. And if you talk to to folks in some um, some areas that are really experiencing stormwater problems, they're going to pay for it one way or another because they've got stormwater runoff, not just from a pollution issue, but from a flooding issue. Corbin is the Environmental Protection Agency's Chesapeake Bay czar. Officially, he's a senior advisor to the head of the agency. Roughly 18, 19, 20 percent of the nitrogen and phosphorus pollution coming into the bay and local rivers is coming from urban areas via stormwater runoff. And the EPA believes those numbers will only get higher if drastic measures aren't taken. Stormwater runoff is the fastest growing source of pollution to the bay, and it can damage the health of the watershed in other ways as well, carrying sediment into the water and stopping sunlight from reaching underwater vegetation that needs it. The issue is a big enough deal to have brought Corbin together with more than 100 government and nonprofit leaders from across the Mid-Atlantic for a stormwater summit this past weekend in Buckystown, Maryland. And while there was enough concern among participants to, well, fill a cistern, there was also a lot of optimism about what communities are doing to stem the flow of stormwater running off into the bay. If you're walking around D.C., you may not even see a lot of the stormwater management that's going on, and it looks like landscaping. That's Amanda Basso with the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. Her organization provides millions of dollars in grants to cities, towns, and nonprofits looking to curb runoff problems. The stormwater management she's talking about includes measures such as porous pavement and soil mixtures in sidewalk tree boxes that are designed to absorb excess nitrogen before it leaches into groundwater. These are fairly simple fixes, but entirely redesigning our urban areas to better control stormwater runoff is no small task, and it's not a cheap one either. Well, obviously, we're not going to pay for it all with grants. Basso says the money her organization hands out in stormwater grants each year, $12 million in all, is primarily aimed at demonstrating the possibilities and spurring innovation. But communities aggressive about stormwater management projects are increasingly turning to a stormwater fee, a method commonly derided as a rain tax by critics. D.C. has had a fee since 2009, and Maryland's version went into effect last summer. Like D.C.'s version, it requires residents and businesses in 10 urban areas west of the Bay to pay a fee based on the amount of impervious surface on their property, much to the chagrin of D. Hodges of the Maryland Taxpayers Association. I think if people in Maryland, and I would say all the people in Maryland had any, had real, any real say in this, they would repeal the rain tax, and it's a nonpartisan issue. They're angry about it because they think it's stupid. Hodges says she's all for a cleaner Chesapeake Bay, but the rain tax, as she calls it, puts more of a burden on residents and businesses while continuing to ignore what she sees as the biggest pollution problem for the bay, polluted sediment spilling into the Susquehanna River from behind the Conowingo Dam near the Maryland-Pennsylvania border. All the money that these counties are paying When the heavy rains come over that dam, whatever good happens in these counties is erased. The EPA and the Chesapeake Bay program agree that the Conowingo Dam problems need to be addressed, but say that's no reason to slow down stormwater management efforts. 
But Hodges says, aside from being misguided, the so-called rain tax is just another example of a governor and state legislators too willing to turn to taxes to fix problems. And she's not alone. A new poll from Gallup shows 67% of Marylanders feel their taxes are too high. That's a number higher than that in all but five other states. I'm Jonathan Wilson. What do you think is the best way to handle storm water runoff flowing into the bay? You can reach us at metro at wamu.org or find us on Twitter. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. On today's show, we've heard about some of the species who call the Chesapeake Bay home, most notably oysters and crabs, and the importance of keeping their numbers up. But scientists are also concerned about the future of a creature that's a little more snake-like. This week, the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission took a step toward tightening restrictions on the East Coast's American eel fisheries. Claire Fieseler traveled from the eastern shore of Maryland to Annapolis and eventually to a hotel ballroom in Alexandria, Virginia, to uncover the story of this unusual and some say imperiled species. The sun is barely over the horizon when I see the twilight, a 103-year-old Potomac River dory waiting at the dock. I'm in Wharton, Maryland, being welcomed aboard this 44-foot-long vessel. My name is Andrew McCown. We're in a little spot called Still Pond Creek. So and we're about to go through a little bottleneck here and get out into the bay proper. Not many people here in Kent County, on Maryland's eastern shore, are YouTube celebrities. But Andrew McCowan is. He's producing a web series called Cool Outdoor Stuff. And that was my first introduction to Andrew. On the internet, watching him talk to the camera, ankle deep in a bucket full of eels. If you, uh, if you happen to have some eels laying around and, and you've had a long day at work, it's a great thing to come home to a nice, relaxing eel foot massage. Oh, oh that's fabulous. Today he's showing me one of the traditional eel pots he uses in these videos and in his outdoor education programs to catch eels. I wanted to see this bizarre fish up close. I mean, this guy might be two feet long. Oh, my God. These <laughs> things are so... Slippery. Look at their eyes. Yeah, they got little teeny eyes. These yellow eels in Andrew's pot do not look anything like the pencil-sized eels you can find in, say, Maine. Eels that are sold for $800 a pound. Nor do they look like the salt-loving eels you might find in a place like the Sargasso Sea near Bermuda. But believe it or not, these are all the same species. And that is the trouble with American eels. They change forms and home locations a lot. When it comes to fish in the Chesapeake Bay, eels have the most complex life history. Uh, eels are really fascinating fish because they, I like to say they do everything backwards. Steve Minkinen is the project leader of the Maryland Fisheries Resource Office with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. We're sitting in his Annapolis office. I ask him to give me a bit of a crash course in eels and why they're such a particularly tricky species for states to manage. In the ocean, they're, they look like a willow leaf, but they're transparent. We call them leptocephalus. They reach the coast. 
now they've transformed into a shape of an eel, but they don't have any pigment at all. So they're two inches long, totally clear. So they've floated into the Chesapeake from the sea, totally on a whim. And when they change to this clear, worm-like form, they start honing in on fresh water. And as they mature, they, they can live in freshwater systems for up to 20 years. Once the eels reach maturity, they become this silvery color and get ready to head out on a long journey south towards Bermuda. They're just transforming into ocean migrants is what they're doing because they're going to stop eating, they're going to migrate downstream, they're going to go to the Sargasso, they're going to spawn one time, and then they're going to die. But really, these are the basics. Scientists, they still don't know the mortality rates of eels or how abundant they are at these different stages. All of the information you might need to sustainably manage the species. And that, that made eels a hot-button issue at this week's meeting at the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission in Alexandria, Virginia. Today, today's a management board meeting. And I'm uh, heading over there. What, what can I expect? They're going to be considering uh, adoption of Addendum 4. Addendum 4 is basically scientific shorthand for a plan. A plan to protect American eels at all life stages. After Monday's deliberation in an echoing hotel ballroom, the commission approved Addendum 4. The plan now enters a round of public comment and future fine-tuning. But some observers, including Steve Minkinen, fear that these restrictions are still not enough. Minkinen and his team are experimenting with a more ecosystem-based approach. They're heading later this month to Conowingo Dam in Maryland. Their plan is to collect tiny eels, put them on trucks, and transport them to the fresh headwaters of the Susquehanna above its dams. Now, this conservation measure may seem a little bizarre, but then again, so is the American eel. Back on the eastern shore, Andrew McCowan and I release the eels back into the water. He thinks Steve Minkinen's project of hauling eels upriver by truck actually makes sense. Fish management, as you know, we address one species at a time, we'd be remiss if we didn't consider the fact that it's all connected and that all of these guys are an important part of the food chain. I'm Claire Fiesler. Maryland will be holding public hearings this summer to get feedback on that addendum Claire mentioned. We have more information about it on MetroConnection.org. And while you're on our website, you can check out that video we heard a bit of, that one featuring outdoor educator Andrew McCown getting an eel foot massage. Yeah, that's on MetroConnection.org, too. minute, remembering the days when roller coasters and arcade games lined the shores of one Chesapeake Bay town. If you were a city kid collecting canes or whatever, your lunch money you saved up, you came over with a pocket full of nickels, you had one heck of a time all day. That and more is coming your way as our look at the Chesapeake continues here on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and today we're exploring the Chesapeake Bay with a show we're calling On the Bay. We've boated on the Patuxent River, we visited crab pickers on Hooper's Island, and our next stop is in the waterfront town of Rock Hall. That's where you'll find Tolchester Beach, though truth be told, you won't find a whole lot of actual beach there. No, these days, Tolchester pretty much consists of a marina 
and a pile of infill. But back in the day, from 1877 to 1962, Tulchester Beach was more or less the Coney Island of the Chesapeake Bay. There were roller coasters, arcade games. At its height, the beachside amusement park was 166 acres of inexpensive family fun. And yet nowadays, hardly anyone knows about the place. And that's what the tiny Tulchester Beach Revisited Museum is trying to fix. Lauren Ober brings us the story of one man's efforts to make the history of the park come alive. Picture this. It's a perfect summer day. Not too muggy or hot. Ideal for doing something outside. So you pack a picnic, gather up the family, and head down to the boat docks at the Baltimore Harbor for a lazy trip to the beach. You board a side-wheeled paddle steamer and settle in for a relaxing cruise across the Chesapeake Bay. Two and a half hours later, you arrive at your destination, Tallchester Beach. It was basically someplace we could take people out of the city to just relax. That's Danny Burris. He knows a little something about Tallchester, but more on that in a minute. Basically, it was a beach. It evolved to something more because of competition. You had all these numerous other places, so you had to set yourself above everybody. And the way that Tallchester Beach made itself stand out from the other beaches on the eastern shore was simple. It became an amusement park, the largest one on the Delmarva Peninsula. They had everything from roller coasters to what they call the whip rides. They had go-karts, which they called Custer cars. Basically, it was a, an amusement park atmosphere, the ocean city of, you know, of its day. Today, it's hard to find anyone who ever visited the amusement park in its heyday, despite the fact that millions of visitors once alighted on Tallchester shores. It closed before Danny Burris was even born. But that isn't stopping him from trying to preserve the park's memory. As the de facto curator of the Tallchester Beach Revisited Museum, it's Burris's job to educate visitors about a part of the shore's history that has long since passed. For me, it's that one thing in your life that comes into your life. You don't know why you're doing it. You just know it's right. You know what you're doing is for the benefit of future generations. For me, it's just a, it's an absolute love of, of this stuff. And by this stuff, Burris means a collection of memorabilia and keepsakes from the amusement park, which are housed in a tiny shanty set off the main road in Rock Hall. The collection was started by an Eastern Shore transplant named Bill Betts, who is fascinated by the park. Betts died in December at the age of 92, and the museum's upkeep has fallen to his friend and apprentice, Danny Burris. This was his home, away from home. And this was his life. Every weekend, nobody ever had to ask him to be here. He was here. So now, between me and my wife and my three daughters, we try to keep that same drive and show it back to the public. For as small as the museum is, it holds a lot of artifacts, from original signage to arcade games to old-timey photos of the park at the pinnacle of its operation. Burris walks me through the collection and points out some of his favorites. They had a steam engine. Everybody that ever went there had to ride on it. I don't care if you were two or 102. The little steam train was named Jumbo. That is probably the most photographed piece of amusement park memorabilia that we have. Caddy corner to the miniature yellow train car is a wooden wheel that park goers would spin for prizes in the bingo and novelty hall. The wheel is actually in the photograph that we have right here. You can see this wheel and it's still, you can get the sound on it. You can still hear the wheel run. 
It still works perfect. Then Burris takes me into a small room that holds dozens of photos of various rides, including Pike's Peak, the Whirlpool, and something called the Tickler. Hanging on the wall in identical flimsy plastic frames are two wool bathing suits circa 1920. Back in the day before everyone owned a bathing suit, the park had thousands of these on hand to rent to visitors. We had the original bathing suits from Tallchester. The gentleman's is the black one. It looks like a bib overall with the legs cut off. It is 100% wool. You Mind you, you wore this in the summertime, so itching and scratching. Can you imagine wearing that gentleman's bathing suit ever? Sure. No yeah, way. Sure I could. You would never get into that. <laughs> I would probably get into it, but I'd, <laughs> I'd look like an elephant riding on the back of a flea. When he first met Bill Betts, Danny Burris was a 550-pound truck driver who desperately needed a life change. By introducing him to this local history, Betts opened a door for Burris. The museum gave him a seemingly never-ending project on which to focus his energy. And after Burris had gastric sleeve surgery last year to reduce his weight, tinkering with the museum's collection became integral to his recovery. I'd come down. I'd come visit Bill. I figured, well, at least I can go down there. At least I could do something. When Burris's mentor passed away, it was up to him to carry the mantle of the museum. He happily took on the task. The museum is for Kent County, but for me... It was giving back to a friend who, the last 12 years, gave me everything. And it keeps his memory alive. It also keeps alive the memory of this funny little amusement park on the shore. I'm Lauren Ober. We have a slideshow of photos of the Tulchester Museum's collection. You can check them out on our website, metroconnection.org. If you head about 90 minutes south from Tolchester Beach, you'll eventually hit the town of Oxford, Maryland. It's best known for its 331-year-old ferry service, which we featured on Metro Connection a few weeks back. But Oxford is also renowned for boat building. And that's the topic of this week's On the Coast. Brian Russo's series from the eastern shore of Maryland and coastal Delaware. This time around, he takes us to the Cuts and Case Shipyard, a long-running family business owned by brothers Eddie and Ronnie Cuts. Their father, Edmund, was a boat builder, and in the 1600s, one of their ancestors actually opened the very first shipyard in the state of Maine. Brian recently stopped by the Cuts Shipyard in Oxford to talk with Eddie about the craftsmanship involved in building a wooden ship and how his family developed a technique now known as the Cuts Method we build the boats, but we, we set the molds up the same way, which determine the shape of the boat. And then we uh, plank those molds over. But instead of using full thickness planking, we will use about three-quarters of the thickness. So if we're going to want to finish with an inch boat, we might use three-quarters to five-eighths inch planking for the first layer of planking. And then from shear to shear across the bottom of the boat, we cut grooves every four or five inches, and in those grooves, we put Kevlar cord. Those Kevlar cords are like five or six times the strength of steel for its weight, and they glue beautifully. 
They were actually formulated by DuPont Company uh, as an alternative to steel belting and radial tires. They later became used quite extensively for uh, Kevlar vests and military service clothes for protection, high abrasion, and uh, a lot of brake pads so that we could move away from asbestos. But the cuts method then takes that inner planking uh, substrate and then we cord it across, of course, from shear to shear, all the way athwart ships around the boat. And then we plank another layer over it. And then we have our full planking thickness with the framing tensile requirements uh, in, right in the center of the planking substrate. So we basically achieve a, a neutral axis. There's no leverage factor as there is with the normal plank on frame boat. And we're glue seam constructed, so we're very tight. And uh, we're very, very light. When you look at just the craftsmanship of what you do and, and coming up in the industry and watching it sort of change over from wood being the preferred main structure of these boats to moving over to fiberglass and epoxy. Is it making it harder for what you do in your craft to sell and, and to survive now that maybe the consumer trends are changing a little bit away from wood? It's harder in, the, in, the, uh, in some senses, in, particularly from our standpoint uh, with the maintenance side of it, because a lot of these boats... The glass boats, they just don't require the maintenance that the old wooden boats used to require. Mm-hmm. The wooden boats, we would typically haul them every year and, uh, you know, really go through, replace some caulking cotton, maybe replace a bad piece of wood here and there. And, you know, we'd have 25 or 30 boats and we'd end up painting those boats from the trucks on the top of the masts all the way to the bottom of the ballast. Mm-hmm. A lot of these more modern fiberglass boats don't go through such a maintenance schedule as that. Um, at the same time, they don't have the, a lot of times, it's not fair to say they don't, some of them are very beautiful and artistically done, but the older boats, there was a lot more individual art in every one of them. It was an art that was built into the boat by the builder, interpreting what the designer's original art was, and then putting his own finishes on it as a mark of pride of a craftsman. You know, it seems like boatyards like this, there's, there's a number of them around this little town. Right. First off, why is Oxford still, you know, succeeding in that? And how do you think the future looks for what you do in your craft? Well, I think that uh, Oxford is a very desirable little town, and people feel very confident and comfortable here. Um, you know, if, for instance, if you just look at the logistics of the town, there's a beautiful little ferry boat people mm-hmm. can ride across the creek, but in the evening that turns off. That's shut down and put away. So from the ferry boat to where the road divides is a six-mile hike. So if anybody comes in town with bad thoughts in their head, the police have six miles to catch the guy, yeah. you know, on the way out of town because there's one way out because <laughs> the ferry's done. And uh, the policemen are pretty fast with their radios. So there's really not a lot of shenanigans going on down here. And we have a lot of people that come over from Washington and those areas that have bought these local homes. And they weekend and they use them that way. And uh, they all want to take their guests out and use their boats. And and Oxford's a nice little town for that. Uh, As far as the industry uh, and what's going on with it, there's a a large maintenance faction of the industry, and almost everybody here is in maintenance. There's only two yards building here, and I think it's us 
and we haven't built one in a while and Tommy Campbell up the street, you know, and uh, he does a, a semi-production powerboat, which is not what we're into at all, but we're into this niche of classic type of wood type work and that's mm-hmm. what we want to do. Um, we'd like to increase that, but I think that the best place for us to really increase it is to be looking at for sales or some aspect way up north or someplace else because down here there's there's some but it, it seems like there's much more of a vibrant wooden boat community say from the Cape Cod Canal north That was Eddie Cutts speaking with Coastal Reporter Brian Russo. You can hear more of Brian's interviews and stories on our sister show, Coastal Connection. It airs Fridays at noon and 8 on WRAU 88.3 in Ocean City. trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we'll visit two of Maryland's Chesapeake Bay communities, Kent Island, and the place where we began today's show, Solomon's Island. My name is Anita Shepard. I live on Solomon's Island, Maryland. Solomon's Island is located at the southern tip of Calvert County, which is a peninsula located between the Patuxent River and the Chesapeake Bay. Solomon's Island was basically established as a community in 1865 when Isaac Solomon purchased land. He came from Baltimore. He established a cannery, and then it became a fishing village, an oyster village. It became a post office from the United States Postal Service in 1870. We have immensely, fantastically gorgeous sunsets here which my grandchildren love to point out to me. Let's watch the sunset. We watch people drive by, pull over their cars, and get out and take pictures of the sunset. We have gorgeous fogs. We love watching the oystermen in the wintertime. And this winter, for the first time in many, many, many years, we even had ice flows on the river. It is a walking community. It is a very small population. The island itself, under 100 people live on the island. It's a place where everyone knows your name. My name is William Erickson Denny III. My age is 81 and I live in Stevensville, Maryland, which is located on Kent Island. Kent Island is located in the Chesapeake Bay at the foot of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge. It would be uh, the first English settlement in Maryland settled by William Claiborne in 1634. The island is actually named by William Claiborne who settled here and uh, he actually called it the Isle of Kent because he came from Kent, England. There's actually a lot of history here. Some people love that, other people are more interested in going swimming at Ocean City or Rehoboth. But you can do the same thing right here on Kent Island. In the wintertime, you have a lot of geese 
Canadian geese, a lot of snow geese, and they stay here all winter and go back when the temperature changes. You're looking at a changing part of nature, and that's what makes it so beautiful because your pictures of Kenan change every hour or every half hour, and uh, to me, that's wonderful. We heard from William Denny III on Kent Island and Anita Shepard on Solomon's Island. Think your neighborhood should be part of door-to-door? Send an email to metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at wamumetro. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Lauren Ober, Tara Boyle, Jonathan Wilson, and Brian Russo, along with reporter Claire Fieseler. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Tyler Daniels. Lauren Landau and John Hines produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. We have information on all the music we use on metroconnection.org. Just click a story, and you'll find information about its accompanying song. You can also hear the entire show on our website by clicking This Week on Metro Connection or by subscribing to our podcast. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we're all about breaking a sweat. From aerobics classes to swimming laps, we'll get ourselves up and moving. We'll join actor Bill Pullman and choreographer Liz Lerman in dancing up a perfect storm at Arena Stage. We'll visit the nation's premier center dedicated to sweat research. And we'll get in on the growing craze for stand-up paddleboarding. I thought I was going to suffocate until I discovered the river. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.